So the will of God comes up in a lot of conversations. Um, conversations about decisions we're going to make, about life change or careers or dating and homes and cars and education. We kind of couch our options in terms of trying to discern the Lord's will. And that's okay. I'm, I'm not mocking it. In every situation you're in, in every financial decision you make, in every life-changing potential, in every career-changing crossroads, there is indeed a right decision and a wrong one. And wisdom tells us what's right and wrong, what decisions we make will prepare us for the coming kingdom, and what decisions we make will become an obstacle in the way. So when you're at a crossroads like that, it's totally okay and appropriate to ask for wisdom or to use the terms to try and discern the Lord's will. But I'm afraid that because we couch these sort of decisions in terms like trying to discern the Lord's will, we might verge in the territory of misunderstanding the nature of our freedom. It is true that God desires for you to behave rightly. And if you choose not to, it is true on some level that you're living outside of the will of God. It's true that sin does not please Him. And He wants you to pursue Him and to flee sin. When you are in sin, then, you are outside of the will of God on one level. But on another level, you cannot live outside of the will of God. It's impossible. Let me explain what I mean. God is doing something. And He has been doing that thing from the outset of creation. And we've got a number of terms to try and wrap our minds around what He's doing, like establishing a kingdom, or redeeming a people, or preparing a bride, or building a place for us. But all of these terms mean the same thing. They refer to the good work that God is doing to rescue a people for His great namesake. God is working to save so that those He saves will shout of His worth forever and ever. And that work began on the first day and it will be completed on the last day. And that work is the will of God. But here's the thing about that work. You cannot get in its way. You cannot thwart it. You cannot stall it. It is unfolding precisely the way He wants it to unfold. In fact, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you are a part of that work. And in this way, you are always operating within the will of God. It doesn't mean you're behaving well. It doesn't mean that you aren't resisting Him at every turn. It just means that everything you do and say and think will turn out to serve His purposes. Let me prove it to you. I want to read to you a few Proverbs, and I'd like for you to listen closely and attempt to make some connections. The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes His steps. 
the plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Are you beginning to see a theme here? All of these Proverbs are reflections on the same idea. And that idea is that God's will is the ultimate arbiter of action. Whether or not your intentions are to remain within God's will, He will act such that you must. You you may not be within His will, meaning that you may not always please Him, but you will always be within His will, meaning that everything you do and say and think will work towards establishing His coming kingdom, whether or not you are a part of it. The passage we're going to read today teaches us that nothing can get in the way of God's kingdom. Or to put it another way, this passage teaches us that God will use everything and everyone to establish His kingdom whether or not those people are a part of it. So let's get to it. Turn with me to the last verses of 1 Samuel 18. I'm starting in verse 30. 1 Samuel 18, verse 30. Let's read together. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So this is a quick summary of the last few chapters. As David goes out to battle against the enemies of God, he experiences tremendous success. He leads the armies of Israel to victory. And though Saul intends his destruction by sending him to the front lines over and over again, all of this actually works toward David's glory. His reputation has spread throughout Israel and Judah, and the people of Israel are singing songs about his victories. All right, keep reading. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. 
Okay, so the first thing that I want you to notice is that Saul's murderous rage against the coming king has become more and more explicit. The dragon is growing, right? What began as a mere suspicion has evolved to clearly articulated murderous conspiracy. Saul kept an eye on David and watched him closely and grew bitterly jealous of David. And in his lowest moments of emotional and spiritual torment, he attempted to kill him with a spear. But he grew more intentional as time went on and more deliberate. And he began to plot the destruction of David, not just in the moments of torment, but in his sober moments. Time went on and he became an architect of, an entire, of entire military campaigns whose sole purpose was to eliminate the life of his rival. What began as a strictly internal sin of jealousy has matured into conspiracy of the highest order. All because his efforts have thus far failed, we now see Saul ordering his entire court of servants to kill David. Now, I mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. This is how sin works. Sin always starts little, but sin never stops until it's all-consuming, until its influence has corrupted every thought and every relationship and every moment of peace. Sin will consume. It's what it does. some of the first words of God directly from the mouth of God to Adam or to his son. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to dominate you. But you must rule over it. That's not hyperbole. So Saul has commissioned his court to murder David. And not only his court, but his son. Jonathan, the faithful son. And the author takes a moment to remind you that Jonathan's soul was knit to David. Just after David defeats the giant, you may remember, Jonathan swore loyalty to David. And he gives him the prince's robes and the prince's sword and the prince's armor. And he makes a covenant with him. And that means that should it be required, Jonathan will give his life in David's place. So when Jonathan hears Saul's commissioning the murder of his best friend, he acts according to his covenant. First, he leaves the presence of his father and he warns David that murderers are seeking his life. He asks him to hide and to await instruction. It's important here to recognize that Jonathan is risking everything on David's behalf. Because Saul is a murderer who's willing to pin his enemy to the wall in a fit of jealousy. So when Jonathan refused to obey his father and actually works against him, he's placing himself in very real danger. And that's remarkable enough, but the real work of the faithful son is a work of intercession. Jonathan returns from warning David and he appeals to his father on David's behalf. And his argument is pretty straightforward. One, 
He hasn't done anything wrong, Saul, so you shouldn't kill him. Two, his victories have benefited you personally, so you shouldn't kill him. And three, you don't want to be guilty of shedding innocent blood before God, so you shouldn't kill him. And in this way, Jonathan intercedes on behalf of the coming king, and he prevails. His intercession actually works. Saul admits that he's wrong, and he actually swears to God not to end David's life. You see, God is working to establish a coming kingdom, and he works through the intercession of the faithful to secure that kingdom. Keep reading. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I might kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy go, so that he has escaped." And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So again, we're reminded that the spirit has rushed upon David and remains with him because literally everywhere he goes, he's met with success. I mean, this section of the story starts out with his tremendous victory on the battlefield. I think it's noteworthy that This type of victory where the Philistines flee in terror would have been a landmark moment for the people of Israel at any point in their background. But now it's become commonplace because the Spirit of God is so powerfully falling on His anointed. And He is working daily to establish the coming kingdom. But at this point, and are you starting to detect a pattern here. Again, Saul is filled with jealousy. Again, Saul attempts to pin David against the wall in a murderous rage, but this time David doesn't stick around for round two. He runs from Saul's court to his home. Now, you may notice that this is the first glimpse we get of Michal, other than the brief introduction last chapter, where really we just learn that she loves David and that she's given to him in marriage. So when we get introductions like this, it's important to keep an eye on the details and to consider their implications. When McCall first speaks, it's an attempt to rescue David. And that shouldn't surprise us for two reasons. One, because this is God's anointed. 
full of the Spirit. And He's the promised coming King. And we ought to expect by now that everything will work together to establish His kingdom. But second, we shouldn't be surprised because all we know about McCall at this point is that she loves David. So she encourages David to flee out a window. And then she protects his way by placing a man-shaped idol. This is a full-size man-shaped idol on the bed. And dresses it up to look like a person. Later, when her actions are discovered, she lies to the corrupt king to protect herself. Now, there's a lot going on here, but I want to spend a bit of time exploring this episode. First, one of the most important connections you should make is to note that Michal herself was given to, merit, given to David in marriage to, quote, become a snare to him. Now, last week we explored a bit what that might mean. But now it's become clear because as soon as David follows her instructions and leaps out of an unguarded window, we learn that Michal grabs a man-shaped idol and places it in the bed. And that means, guys, that McCall has been worshiping idols in her home. She's an idol worshiper. She has broken the covenant. She is in active rebellion against God. She's ignoring the Word of God. She's replacing Creator with creation, just like her father. That's the first thing you should note. And you shouldn't let her otherwise admirable actions cloud that fact. Second, and this is why I'm so grateful for the library we have across the street, because I wouldn't have seen it except that there's a brilliant commentary in there. The second thing you should notice is that if you step back for a moment and look at this story, it might remind you of several other very important stories in the Bible. I'm just going to read you a paragraph from the New American Commentary. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, too, was saved by a woman who had possession of an idol and deceived her father during a desperate search. Moses also was saved through the efforts of the daughter of a wicked ruler. Furthermore, David's escape echoes that of the spies saved by Rahab who were let down through a window at night by a woman who lied to a king. These patterns layered upon one another on top of this story. See, this story, the story of David rescued by the hands of his idolatrous wife, the daughter of a king, ought to remind you that God will work to fulfill His promise by any means necessary. God has promised to secure a people and to establish a kingdom and to send a Savior. And He will do it. And the point of stories like these, stories wherein the least likely figure becomes pivotal in the work of God to protect His anointed and to establish His kingdom. Stories like this mean that God will use anything and anyone to fulfill His promise. Don't read the story of Moses or of Jacob or of the spies of Israel and think, wow, I had no idea that idolaters were this virtuous. That's not the point. When you read stories like this, you need to think, wow, nothing can stop our God. All men and women are tools in His hand to fulfill His promises. 
Even the daughter of Pharaoh, even the prostitute of Jericho, even the lost daughter of Saul, nothing can stop our God. And not only that, but you should see that this is yet another very big statement about the centrality and importance of the life of David in God's overall plan. There there have been to this point, and there will be beyond this point, many leaders in Israel. And if you weren't careful, you might begin to believe that David is merely another in a line of kings or judges or prophets leading the people of God. But when he jumps out that window and when his idol-worshiping princess protects his way and lies to the king, you've just been given major signs that this guy is special. Do you remember Looney Tunes? I used to watch it all the time when I was a kid. There's something that happened in Looney Looney Tunes uh, that I thought was really funny, mostly in Wile E. Coyote episodes. You know, you're tracking with me? He's always trying to eat the Roadrunner. He's got his, like, fork and knife. Right? And he sets up all these, like, really elaborate traps uh, with, like, painted canvases and, like, boulders ready to swing from trees and all sorts of, you know, bear traps. And usually, like, at the base of all these traps, there's these big red arrows, right? All over the place, pointing. And like, safe passage, tunnel here, free breakfast. No subtlety at all, right? It's sort of like what's happening here. Sort of. If you're reading and you're paying attention, you'd remember that the world was broken and lost without hope until God makes some extraordinary promises to a guy named Abraham. He'll bless the world through his line. We, I think we're so numb to it because we know the story so well, but think about it. All that precedes Abraham is death and destruction without hope. But these... M- Little tiny glimpses. But then, this promise, I'll bless the world through your line. Kings will arise. All the nations will be blessed. And if you're reading it like a book, from that moment forward, you're looking for for the fulfillment of that promise, right? And almost immediately after Abraham's story concludes, we read of Jacob and his extraordinary rescue. And then we know that God is working. And we continue to turn the pages looking for evidence of God's work. And we read the miraculous birth and life of Moses. And we know that God is working. And when we read of the spies of Israel preserved by the hand and faith of a prostitute, we know that God is working. And when you read the life of David... And you're reminded of Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Rahab. You know that God is working. He will not cease His labors until His kingdom is established. And in this case, God is working. And He works even through the intervention of the foolish. Alright, keep reading. Now, David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. 
And he and Samuel went and lived at Nauth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nauth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. So he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nauth in Ramah. And he went there. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he prophesied, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nauth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This, as you might have guessed, is the climax in a series of episodes. The narrative arc, which started with David's victory, peaks here with Saul stripped of his royal robes, prophesying humbly before the coming king and the prophet of God. And guys, there is so much here that it will be nearly impossible to tease out all the details, but it's worth a shot. First, note this. David flees to Samuel. Three things. First, David and Samuel, as far as we know, haven't really spoken since David was anointed as the coming king. We don't have any evidence that they maintained a robust friendship or camaraderie, that they maintained a connection in any way. In fact, the only thing we know about David and Samuel is that they both walk in the power of the Spirit, both are instrumental in the establishment of the coming kingdom, and both are great enemies of Saul. Second, Ramah is only about 90 minutes' trek from Gibeah, where Saul reigned. So the object of this venture is not the personal safety of David. David isn't putting as much distance between he and Saul as possible. And we'll see this happen later. He'll flee to the land of the Philistines later. But at this point, you shouldn't see this episode as a last-ditch attempt to escape the reach of a murderous king. David travels about an hour and a half and stops indefinitely. So the object of his adventure is not to hide in a secure location, no. The point of the trip is to see the prophet of God. And third, apparently David makes no efforts to travel in secret. Very soon after he arrives in Ramah, Word is sent to the king that David and Samuel are dwelling together. The text doesn't really mention any prolonged time between his arrival and Saul's hearing of his arrival. All of these things, I think, work together to teach us that when David fled from the court of Saul 
through a window out of the city of Gibeah and into the presence of Samuel and Ramah. His object was not to place himself in a secure location. His object was not to hide from Saul. His object was not to let this whole disaster blow over until Saul felt a little bit, a little less inclined to murder. No. David's destination was Ramah because Samuel was there. And everything about this episode should remind you of chapter 10. Do you remember when Saul was chosen as king of Israel? Think back. Do you remember? He wandered the wilderness blindly asking for the prophet, not because it occurred to him to seek God, but because it had occurred to his servant. And so he wandered his way toward Ramah, and after a clumsy and embarrassing series of interactions, he stumbles upon the prophet of God. And when he arrives, he's anointed, and he's given instructions to return, but he does not do so. He does not seek shelter in the presence of the Lord. He does not wait on the prophet and priest of God. This episode should also remind you of chapters 13 and 14. Do you remember when Saul's armies are scattered and his court is trembling because there's an unending army looming on the horizon? What does he do then? He rejects the instructions of God. And he refuses to wait on the prophet. And he hides in a cave, terrified. Because that's the way of the pretender king. But not the true king of Israel. David runs to Samuel in the midst of trial. He does not take matters into his own hands. He does not hide in a cave. He seeks God when his life is threatened. He runs to the prophet. He appeals to the priest. Though his enemy would know exactly where he was, though his life by all accounts was in grave danger, David runs to the prophet of God because that's the way of the true king. You know, the author is doing this on purpose. He's choosing to relay these events with emphasis on these locations and these people so that you compare the actions of the pretender king to the actions of the true king. And so that you would see that the most important feature of the coming king's character was his absolute unwavering allegiance to God. So watch how Saul responds. As soon as he's told that David has fled to Samuel, he sends people to forcibly return him to Gibeah and we may assume to kill him in his presence. But God sometimes works in funny ways. Because these guys ascend the hill toward Ramah and encounter the prophets of God with Samuel leading them. And the Spirit falls on the lot of them. Everybody's prophesying, even Saul's cronies. And so Saul sends another group, and it happens again. And then Saul sends another group, and it happens again. I think it's worth noting that in not so many decades, another corrupt king will send to retrieve another prophet of God. And in this case, it isn't the spirit that falls mightily upon its captors. It's another sort of fire from heaven. That is, the literal kind. 
And in both cases, a corrupt king's will is thwarted because God does what He wants. The nations rage, and he who sits in heaven laughs. And whether by the fire of the Spirit or by the literal fire from heaven, God will establish His kingdom and He will fulfill His promises. No wicked king can thwart His will. After Saul recognizes that his plan hasn't worked yet and is probably not going to work, he himself goes to Ramah. And this is where the parallel between that first story of Saul and this story of Saul becomes really explicit. Because he wanders the countryside just as he had done. And he asks passers-by the way to the prophet just as he had done. And he ascends the high place just as he had done. And in both cases, he encounters the prophet of God. The first time, he's anointed king by the prophet of God. This time, he's humiliated before the prophet of God. The first time, he's given a royal seat at a table and a royal anointing and a royal commission. This time, he's stripped of his royal robes and he lies in shame before the true king of Israel. The first time, the Spirit fell upon him so that he might work mightily on behalf of God's people. This time, the Spirit falls upon him so that he might bow before the true king. And in both cases, the sons and daughters of Israel ask, is Saul also among the prophets? Because they knew that God is faithful to fulfill His promises and He will use even the corruption of a pretender king to do so. And that, I think, is the point of the passage. God will establish His kingdom. His purpose to establish His kingdom and to rescue His people under the coming King will not be thwarted. All things work together toward that end. And all people work together toward that end, whether they're a part of that kingdom or not. He will establish His kingdom by the intercession of the faithful. He will establish His kingdom by the interference of the foolish. And He will establish His kingdom by the humiliation of the wicked. That's the point of this passage. And David is just a shadow of the coming King Jesus. Just as David was anointed by the prophet of God, Jesus was anointed by the greatest prophet of God. Just as David risked his life to win freedom for his people, Jesus laid down his life to win redemption for his people. All things work together to establish the finite kingdom of Israel. And all things are working together right now to establish the infinite kingdom of God. So what does that mean for me and you? What does that mean for you and me? It means the kingdom is coming. It means the arrival of the kingdom of God is inevitable. And if its arrival is inevitable, I'd rather work toward it willingly. Wouldn't you? If every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, some to unspeakable joy 
and others to despair unending. If every knee will bow, I want to bow enthusiastically. If every tongue will confess, I want to confess with shouts of glory and praise. If the kingdom indeed is coming and I can do nothing to stop it, then I want to be a part of that kingdom. Don't you? I want to be the faithful prince who intercedes and not the wicked king who is humiliated. Don't you? We're given a picture in this passage of the types of instruments that God uses to establish His kingdom. And you're here in this church at this moment listening to these words because you too are an instrument of God that He will use to establish His kingdom. And you can be faithful or foolish. You can be faithful or wicked. But there is no third direction. So here it is. Work feverishly to prepare for the coming King. Make ready His people. Intercede on behalf of His kingdom. Jesus has accomplished His work of redemption and He will return to establish His kingdom. What are you doing to prepare for that moment? That's an honest question. I want you to think about it. Because the reason you breathe is to prepare for the coming kingdom. And you will do it passively or actively, faithfully or foolishly. So what are you doing to prepare for the coming kingdom? When the trumpet shouts, will it be to your shame? Or will it be the realization of your great hope and the culmination of all your lifelong efforts? Here's your homework. Ask yourself the following questions honestly. One, I'm going to post these on the city. There's a lot of questions. Don't don't write them down. One, what are you doing to prepare for the coming kingdom? Two, do you think about the king's return? Do you plan on it? Do all of your strategies terminate upon it? Three, what does your career have to do with the coming kingdom? Does it equip you to prepare or does it inhibit you from from preparing? Four, the money you spend, are you investing in the coming kingdom or are you distracting yourself and others from the coming kingdom? Five, the people you interact with, are you preparing them for the coming kingdom? Or are you pretending that our king will not return like a thief in the night? Six. Is your marriage an explicit picture of the gospel? When people come over to your home or see you interact in public, or if they knew what you said to one another and how you treated one another in private, does your marriage give people an idea of what our coming king would be like? 
and how he will treat his people and how they'll love him. Seven, how's your mind? Are you thinking strategically about the coming kingdom and about his people? Or are you distracting yourself from the coming kingdom? Last one, how's your heart? Where is your hope? What thrills you? What occupies your meditations? What fills you with hope? Is it the kingdom? I'm guessing that these are tough questions because I had to type them out and they, that was a miserable process. If you're like me, you won't love the answers to all of them. So when you uncover sin in your heart, here's what you do. When you find that you're distracted by the trappings of this broken kingdom, instead of preparing for the kingdom to come, here's what you do. First, be sober when you think about your own sin. It is there and it is ugly. You have corrupted that which you were set to steward. We talked about this last week. You seek glory, you seek pleasure, and you are probably, if you're like me, most of the time the center of your own universe. We are all pretender kings, and the first step is knowing it, honestly. Honestly reflect on the sin that remains in your heart. Know it for what it is. Don't let your eyes be deceived. If anyone says he has no sin, the truth is not in him. And if you feel, if you really believe that you don't presently struggle with sin at all, ask your friends to tell you the truth. And if they won't, you need to get better friends. (laughs) The truth is that when we ask all of these questions, we're not going to find ourselves probably where Jonathan was. Also, we probably won't find ourselves in the deepest expression of where Saul was, but we're somewhere in between. Envision and plead with the Lord to remove the idols that will keep you from preparing for the coming kingdom. Run to the throne of grace. What does that mean? Our King Jesus has initiated what some like to call the great trade. He has taken our sins, and in place of those sins, He has given us righteousness. Praise God. If you read through these questions and you feel guilt, you need to know that if you trust Jesus, you don't carry the guilt of your sins anymore. You needn't fear the wrath of God because you wear Christ's righteousness. And wearing that righteousness means that at any moment we can approach the throne of grace in prayer and ask Him to ready ourselves for the kingdom that He's promised. We can ask God to take away our raging sin and He is faithful to do it. We can ask Him to replace that sin with burden-carrying love. We can ask God for faith that intercedes on behalf of the kingdom. We can ask God for opportunities to make ready the people 
of God to become citizens in that kingdom. And we can ask God to fill us with His Spirit that we we might proclaim the Gospel with boldness to ready a people for the King. So, ask the questions. And then, when you fall short, run to the throne of grace, honestly confessing your sin, and plead with Him for readiness Let's get started right now. Let's pray together.